session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakli, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. Get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded as of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, on today's show, I actually wanted to continue some thoughts that I had uh, from the book Selfless by Brian Lowry that I discussed on Monday. Not necessarily discussing the book itself, but some themes related to our sense of self, how we uh, see our own selves and other people's selves, and also ways that we might not realize our sense of self is being stimulated or a big part of an experience that we have. So there'll be a few topics beginning on this um, theme of the self and what does it mean to even have a, a sense of self and is it something that's real or something imagined somewhere in between. So let's just jump right into it. The sense of self that we all have is like a feeling of what it's like to be you. And that might sound obvious, but it's not necessarily something that you would have to experience. You could just have a series of experiences that you would have that would just be this feeling, that feeling, this thought, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be that there's a sense of who I am that I see as something singular. It could be a more of a series of, of experiences. And even some would argue it is this coherence or are wanting this coherence that makes us have this sense of self that I am this stable thing that exists today, tomorrow, and it was 10 years ago, and it will be 10 years from now. There's something about me that makes me me, that even if I change a bit in appearance, even if things change in my surroundings, even people I'm in relationship with, it doesn't mean that my sense of self would change. And some of these things were definitely discussed in the book by Ryan Lowry. And so when I We'll, I'll discuss this in more detail. What does it feel like to have a sense of self? But starting with a more lighthearted topic, I was thinking of the experience of being a sports fan and how that is related to our sense of self. And throughout the years, you've heard me talk about sports often because I'm a huge sports fan. Definitely played much more basketball when I was younger, have been able to play a bit recently, which has been a lot of fun. But I also have been watching sports and love watching sports uh, lately, even more into soccer or football, depending on where you are in the world. And so I've experienced the, the highs and lows that come from being a sports fan. And it's one of those things where when we're so impacted by something like sports that if you are a sports fan yourself, you totally get it, and you've been there. But if you're not, it could seem quite bizarre. And I can get that even as someone who is a huge sports fan, that someone could look at it and say, okay, so let's say in a team sport, two groups of people are playing a game, and 
based on your team winning or losing, one group winning or losing, you feel really good or really bad, or it could make your day or mess up your day. And it seems bizarre. It seems even illogical, like a way of not living um, wisely because you're letting your well-being be impacted by the performance of some group of people that, uh, generally speaking, is not going to work out well. And I mean in the sense that, let's say, you're a fan of a team that has 30 teams or 20 teams. Um, most of the time, almost every year, your team is not going to be winning. So you're going to be disappointed at the end of the year. So that's something even as a Lakers fan, which I've been since childhood, they've been one of the most successful franchises. But still in the time that I've been a Lakers fan, most years they lose compared to years that they win the championship. So you are signing yourself up for something that will more often than not make you down or sad. But also it's something out of your control. It can seem pretty meaningless that it's some people playing the game and let's see who scores more goals or has more points or whatever the game is. And at some level, I think there's also some truth to this. I love watching sports, but then sometimes you see things in sports that don't make you feel good, such as the way that it's so, like most things in our society, revolving around capitalism and making money. And that way can be exploiting in a variety of ways uh, from the players, but also to fans and uh, the ways that the, the businesses operate to make money. Uh, or they might align themselves with groups or powers that might not be so good, but because the money is there, there might be some bowing down or giving in to certain powers to make sure uh, the mo most money is made. We've seen this with FIFA and the World Cups and so much controversy over the hosting of World Cups in uh, Russia and Qatar and how likely there was bribery and um, bad actions that took place. And even many people were upset of, or, or we look at even in Brazil, you would see these images of all the money spent for the whole, the stadiums and having the event and seeing poor children watching the fireworks displays from far away. And so we could see this stark contrast of the money spent on some huge celebration while there are children within viewing distance who would benefit from that money that Brazil spent on the event. So there are things that upset me about sports or even players, let's say in American football, there are um, so many studies on CTE, the ways that concussions can affect the health and mental health of players long-term. And again, going back to that exploiting um, the people who are making the, the rules and making the schedules, they want to make it the most entertaining and put the most games, but this often is done at the expense of the players who are playing the games. Even we see in the NFL, even though there was so much talk about how much players can get hurt and concussions and all these things, we heard a lot of news about that. But just in recent years, they added one more game to their schedule. So making it even more likely that players can experience uh, a variety of injuries rather than protecting them or keeping their well-being at heart. So um, I grapple with these, these topics, these issues as well while being uh, a big sports fan and enjoying the experience. Um, now, going back to the theme of, is it even a good idea to be a sports fan? I think, still in the sum total, from a very biased perspective, that it is. 
not, you know, of course, like all things, it depends on how much it's, it's impacting you or how much it affects you. Um, but there's some things we see that, for example, being part of a community in different ways can be something very meaningful. And so when you are part of a sports team or being a fan of a sports team, you feel a connection with your, of course, the team, but also the fellow fans. And that could actually be quite nice. And so you see these community uh, fans or the ways that people connect over sports and having the same team or watching a game together, or you'll be in a city where there's a team and you'll see the whole city is a certain color or people, everyone's at home watching the game. So no one's on the streets. And there's a certain way that there's a, a camaraderie and a sense of community and connection that actually gets brought about from being a sports fan. So I think those aspects of it can be quite good to, to find a sports team and to connect with others on that sports team and to enjoy the games. And there's actually good research showing that there is some benefits to um, being a sports fan as far as the sense of community and connection goes. And of course, it's a stereotype. I, I don't know the exact statistics, but there are likely more male sports fans and female sports fans overall. And the reason why I bring that up is that I think this can be helpful for males because there's research showing that men have a harder time maintaining relationships. Again, these are generalizations, but based on large sums of people that are evaluated and looked at, that men in general have a harder time than women do in maintaining their friendships throughout life. So, you know, we have school and then you're in college, let's say uh, many people might have uh, that experience. And during those times, you have lots of people around you, lots of opportunities to, to make friends and to see your friends. But as people get older and then have their own um, families and careers and, and move in those directions, there's less of these opportunities that are baked into your routine and your schedule where you see your friends. And then, of course, having children and getting caught up with um, those responsibilities that will make it harder to to see each other unless you really make the time and set aside the time. And so they find that women are better at the staying in touch and staying in contact with one another to maintain those friendships over time. And men can have a harder time with the this and some of it might also be just um, societal pressures of how men are supposed to connect or not connect or opening up to one another. And so what they actually find is it's good if they have a shared activity. So it could be like playing a sport together, playing, uh, having a card night or doing something that happens on a regular basis. And so actually I think um, sports can be one way that people can uh, do this or men might be able to benefit from, okay, we watch the games together on Saturday or Sunday, or you uh, talk about that and it connects you with one another or creates these opportunities to connect. As I'm saying that, of course, what I also see is men who go too far into that, and, and I'll get into that a bit too, becoming too preoccupied with their sports team and watching sports. And even it could be being used as a distraction, just like work or other things could be used as a distraction to get away from their relationships and also get away from responsibility. So that's not a good thing. So, of course, we can't say, okay, well, if I'm watching sports with my friends, I'm definitely doing a good thing. It depends on how much you're doing it and, and what else is going on. If you have a partner and kids, and are you neglecting them to do those things? That wouldn't be a good thing. 
but if you are using it to connect and it feels in balance with your life, then that can be really something quite good. So I think there's benefits to being uh, a sports fan, and I find it quite enjoyable. Even being at sporting events, I think for me, it's one of my favorite things to do. Just if I'm in any city, I would, I don't really, even if I don't care for the teams, I wouldn't mind going to a game just to see that excitement and seeing the fans and seeing the whole spectacle. Spectacle is all for me is quite enjoyable. So I, I'm a, as I mentioned already a few times, biased in the favor of being a, a sports fan, but here are some things that might be related to the mental health aspect of it. Um, so the reason why I wanted to also bring this up when it comes to, you know, how, how would we say this is related to our sense of self? So, of course, you know, people might even identify as, let's say, a Lakers fan or a Liverpool fan, and that might be part of their identity, and it might be more salient or more important, depending on the person. But there's interesting ways that it's not just, okay, I like this team or I'm a fan of that team. We find that people identify with their team. And by the way, later I might get into politics. Team can also be political groups or religious groups or other things as well. But we identify with our team. And I think it was Isaac Asimov that had a quote that says something along the lines of, um, when my favorite athlete wins, I win. You know, and, and related to the sense that when we're watching our team win, it feels like we are winning, that we are going to battle and being the victors, or are we losing? And even they've measured, um, uh, I think, testosterone and other levels in men's blood. First, they've done it in tennis players, the ones actually playing, but then they've also done it on sports fans and found that they also see that when they win, we see certain uh, boosts associated with more testosterone and those things. When they lose, we see these dips. So really, people get down. It does affect their mood, and we can see it in, in the biochemistry of their bodies, that it's not just something external. They actually really are, are feeling something. Um, so they've even done research, which is quite fascinating, where on football, um, uh, college football and uh, college campuses, they've done a few different research um, projects or studies that have looked at how people associate with their team and how it affects their behavior. So one really simple one was that they would look at when a team had a game on a Saturday, usually college football is on a Saturday, Based on whether or not the team won the game, they would see what percentage of students or how many students would be wearing shirts or sweatshirts of the college. And they would find that when the team won, they would find more people wearing uh, their the college's logo or the name of the school. So if you went to UCLA, more people would be wearing UCLA shirts and sweatshirts on the Monday after a game where they won than on a Monday after a team where they lost. And I think they had a name for this, like basking in reflective glory or something like that, which is basically saying like you're trying to uh, in, you know, connect with this winning feeling and being part of the winning team. Also related to this is kind of a, uh, an interesting one um, that I'd like to study a lot where they would ask people to describe certain games that their team had. So this is uh, teams that they really liked. And what they found was that they would be more likely to use language that would associate them with the team when they would win and more likely to use language that would distance them from the team when the team would lose. So what does that look like? So let's say I'm talking about the Lakers and uh, when they won the championship in 2010, I would be more likely to say, oh, yeah, we played so good 
And in game seven, we got behind, but we came back because we had toughness. And so I'm more likely to use the language we, the word we, when I'm talking about the game and the team and what happened. But then if you tell me, okay, what happened in 2004 where they lost the championship to the Detroit Pistons, I would be more likely to say something like, oh, yeah, they played so bad or there was no team chemistry and they were not playing to, to get together enough and that's why they lost. So you might find that I would use the word they more often, talking about another group. I'm not part of the group, so I'm distancing myself from them when they lose. And this is done generally unconsciously. People aren't aware that they're doing it, but the researchers would find that when they would ask people to report about games um, that they either won or lost, they would find this tendency. So we can see that where, you know, we want to be part of the winning side, the winning team, but we want to distance ourselves and not even be part of the team when they lose. Now, we're at a commercial break, and after the break, I'll talk a bit more even about the, the personal ways that we can go up and down when it comes to uh, watching sports and other aspects re related to our sense of self and identity. So let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about being a sports fan. There's the, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and also the sense of community that we have, which I think can actually be quite good, and also the ways that we are more likely to associate ourselves with the team when it wins and to distance ourselves from the team when they lose. So what I want to talk about now going forward from that is also the way we can connect with certain players. And so if you um, are a sports fan, sometimes you're a fan of certain team, teams, um, and sometimes you're fans of certain players, and sometimes both. And often for many people, they're a fan of their teams, and then they start to like the players on their team and, and to cheer for them and feel connected to them even more. But sometimes people won't have a specific team they like, and they'll have a player that they like. And I've experienced both of those things. As I mentioned, I've been a Lakers fan and recently um, becoming a stronger Liverpool fan when it comes to British uh, English soccer. But I've also been fans of certain players and had that experience. And you've maybe heard of some of these debates that people have of who's, who's the GOAT. That's a common conversation. And GOAT usually sounds like a bad thing to be, but actually it's a quite good one when it comes to this conversation or these types of conversations because it's the greatest of all time. And so who's the greatest football player of all time, soccer player of all time, basketball player of all time? And people love to have these debates and they're the types of debates and conversations that can't be solved or, or really come to a conclusion. Um, and I think that's part of actually why people like them and part of why they continue because people every so often will say, oh, this research, that's why I see more of these things. Like the scientists prove that this player is better than this player or this player is the best one all, of all time. But then, of course, you have to look at, well, what were the criteria they used to do their type of research or statistical analysis? And there isn't a black and white way to measure those things. Um, but when we look at players and people being parts of these conversations or fans becoming parts of these conversations, it's interesting to see who players or, or who fans identify with. And it's something you can ask yourself if you are a sports fan, because uh, sometimes you'll find if you look at themes of players or teams you like, there are some 
things that might be common within them or some reasons why you might connect them. So I'll share a little bit personally about myself, something I've noticed throughout my life as a sports fan. I was always a Lakers fan, so that was there. But when it comes to players in some other sports, I've noticed things like, for example, in American football, um, starting many years ago, I'd become a fan of the quarterback, Peyton Manning. And in soccer, my favorite player by far is Leo Messi, who um, some would consider the GOAT, and maybe I'll talk a bit about that, the greatest of all time in, in soccer. But he's been part of this huge debate that rages on to this day between who's better, him or Ronaldo. But looking back at those two players in particular, I noticed that neither one of them were physically that overwhelming as far as when you, you see them as players or uh, as their bodies and, and their physique and what they do with their bodies. Um, Peyton Manning was, of course, when he, when he was younger, let's say stronger, but really what his strongest attribute was uh, was his ability to think and to be incredibly prepared. And he would study, and of course all the players did, but he would be studying even more the other teams and defenses to try to understand what they were going to do to adjust what he would do. And so there was a lot of this mental... Um, strength to what he did as a player. He was known as a very smart player. And when you look at someone like Messi, of course, there's a, a lot to like as a player, but also he was not so physically strong. He was just very skilled and still is and was able to do things not in a flashy way, but just do things quite well. And so I noticed that there's something that connects me to these types of players. And of course, I love watching players who are incredibly physically gifted, but it was something that I never myself, even as a athlete, in my own having fun for myself kind of way, was never very tall or very fast or had anything physically that made me excel if I ever did. It was more trying to play smart and then trying to be very skilled. So, okay, I can be a good basketball shooter and work on that or have a good shot and that can make me play better. But I was never the kind of player that was going to run the fastest, jump the highest, uh, or be very tall. So I, I realized that there might have been something that drew me to certain players. I kind of identified with them even before I connected with them, or that's why I connected with them, that made me become their fan. And you see this in some of the debates that people have, that some of the, the fans that might be more likely to, let's say, like Ronaldo or Messi, I don't think anyone's ever done research on it now as I'm Thing. I think that could be quite interesting just to look at, are there some tendencies there? Of course, it's going to be generalizations, and you'll see people of all walks of life and all personality types liking both of them. But I'm sure, or I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I would have a hunch that there would be some particular characteristics that we might find in people that are more likely to be fans of a certain player over others. And I think that's actually interesting research, quite interesting to me as a sportsman, sports fan myself, but also as a psychologist. So we see this tendency and something to look at yourself. Well, why do I like this player or this team? And of course, you're thinking, well, because they're good, they're the best. But that's already your bias speaking, where there's lots of good players and being the best is going to be a conversation. Uh, and not only that, and this is something I also find fascinating in these types of debates, people connect to a player and they pick a player, but rarely do they change who they think is the better player based on performance over time. So let's say, even in this 
Messi and Ronaldo debate, people might have picked someone back in 2011 or 12 that they thought was the better player. That's something I did maybe slightly earlier than that, but around that time. And then I was going to favor Messi the whole time, no matter what, but we didn't know what was going to happen, who was going to you know, perform at what level, what trophies they would win. And so we see in these conversations, it's like most debates that we have with politics and other topics that people will talk and talk and, and say why they're so sure they're so right and the other person is so wrong. But rarely do people change their minds. So even with new information, people still rarely change their minds. And when it comes to players, it's quite funny in this way because you're saying this player is so good and it's before even a big portion of their career has finished. Of course, you want to show that you are right in even making your prediction. But if it's based on their performance, then if they perform better or worse than the other person, that should impact how you feel. But most people don't change their opinions on who's better. And they find reasons to justify, okay, well, the World Cup was rigged, or this person just does this thing, or this person had bad luck, or this person had better teammates. But we are very good at finding reasons to explain why we are still right and believing this person is the best and the other person isn't that good, even though their performances might go as otherwise. So I just find that quite fascinating, these debates. And um, if you go online, you'll just see people raging on and on about why someone is better, why someone's worse. And even that, you know, I see these pages where someone says, this is why Ronaldo is the best. This is why Messi is the best. Or this is why Ronaldo is so bad. This is why Messi is so bad. And it's funny because, like anything, if we are so adamant about saying something, it usually shows that we have some concern that maybe we're not right about that thing. So if I meet you and say, I don't, lying is so bad, I hate liars, I don't like anyone who lies, that usually should tell you that I probably am not a very honest person myself, because why am I so forthcoming about this information, so adamant about putting it out there? And so similarly, if I am making a whole page on Facebook or Instagram and posting all the reasons why this person is good or bad and keep adding things to it, and even sometimes they edit things to make them look a certain way, well, clearly it shows that it's because I'm a bit uncertain about my position or uncertain about having the upper hand or being right about whatever it might be. And then so why might we care so much about this? Well, as I was saying, as I likely butchered the Isaac Asimov quote, when our team wins, it's like we win. And then when my player wins, it's like I win. I'm the best if this person is the best. It's not the same thing, but a very similar theme to people with superheroes. And there's this way that we see Superman or Batman or Spider-Man, and we feel like that's us. We try, you know, the way we put ourselves in their body or put ourselves in their shoes of what it would be like to be them, and we want them to be strong. We want the hero to win. In a way, we, yes, sometimes see the hero as this external force that can protect us and take care of us, but we also tend to see ourselves in the hero and think that we are the hero too. So similarly, when it comes to our favorite player, there's a way that when they do well, it's like we're doing well. I'm the winner. I'm the best. And that feels good. And you might notice yourself go up and down, and I definitely noticed it myself, which is why watching games, I can get very into it. You maybe would want to see me or wouldn't want to see me watching the World Cup last year. We're actually 
just about coming on the, the anniversary of the final last year, December 18th, uh, I was a nervous wreck and I was all over the place. It's kind of funny in a way, but even I can laugh at myself and like, wow, I was really probably caring too much about the outcome of a game of countries that aren't even related to me in any way, but because I had a favorite player and to see what they did and knowing what it would mean uh, for their legacy, in this case, Messi, and winning the World Cup and how significant that was for his legacy. So I was definitely, I could acknowledge it, way too into it and almost losing my voice at 7 in the morning, screaming at the TV, hoping certain things would happen and certain things wouldn't happen. Because, of course, with connecting, I could say it's just because I, and I do think I, you know, you start to feel a connection to the player and even care for the player. You could even have love for the player that you're, you're watching. And so there is some of that, but it's also something that resonates deeper within of your, our own sense of identity, that when they win, I win. When they lose, I lose, and I can feel weaker if that happens. And then related to that, I've also noticed in my life, and I think many others might relate to this, now as much as I'm still very impacted by things, I could still see a difference when I was a kid, teenager, and younger adult being more impacted by, let's say, the Lakers' performance, that it was such a big part of my sense of happiness, well-being, are they winning, are they losing every single game, bringing me up and down even more. And I think part of that was because there was less in my own life going on. And so I've even noticed that if I'm feeling more down, you know, there could be that sense of like, I really need a win. And so you might care more about your sports team winning when you're not feeling as good about yourself or your life or things that are happening. You kind of need this external win, this external way, which of course it's external, but we internalize it to feel connected to it, to give you a good feeling. So it's also something to notice. So both in a, you know, over time period, like I'm saying, I've noticed that when I was 18, it was the most important thing for me was what was happening with the Lakers. And now I will care, but I, I think because of other things happening in my life, it's less important. So you'll notice that over time. But also within a shorter period of time, you might notice based on the ups and downs that you experience, uh, let's say more like a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month kind of a thing, you'll be more or less impacted by your team because you're maybe needing that more or feeling less good about other aspects of life. And for many people, this would even be a sense of either pride in, in themselves or happiness or a sense of sadness or possibly confirmation of feeling bad or down about themselves. So just some thoughts on sports fandom, the experience. And as, as you heard from me, it's a very personal one too because sports are still a big part of my life and something I'm very passionate about. And after the break, I'll continue on some themes related to the sense of self. Also, as I was mentioning to start to show what it feels like to have a sense of self and the way we feel others' selves as well. So let's go to our next commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing on this theme of the self. And in this topic or this segment, I'll be talking about uh, what I call emotional signatures. And I don't know if it'll be in this segment or the next one, and how that might be related to people's experience of ghosts or having someone's presence be felt. So 
The emotional signature uh, term that I, I'm using refers to a specific way of feeling that we can have, and originally I thought of it more in the terms of how others make us feel, but now extending it to our own sense of self, which is a very unique one. That's why it's called uh, an emotional signature that that person has on us. So when we think of feelings, we tend to think of these broad categories, happy, sad, fear, disgust, anger, but really our emotional experience, or our feeling experience is infinite in the sense that we can't just feel these few categories of things. We really can feel an infinite combination of things or different degrees of experiences. So, you know, even with something like happiness, you might think, well, something makes you feel happy, but there's a difference between a happiness that you know is about to end and might feel more bittersweet and a happiness that just begun. And that itself is a very simplified distinction because it's even more, way more nuanced than that. Um, and so because of this way that our experiences can be infinite, what we also have is that there's an emotional signature, which is the way that someone makes us feel or the way we feel about them or when we think about them. So right now, I can, for example, say mother. And mother has a type of cultural, societal type of meaning. So everyone hears mother, they might think of some of those types of um, general, generalizable characteristics that we have when we think of the word mother. But each of you can also be thinking about what does mother mean to you, your own mom, and whether they're alive or not can impact how that feels. But also there's just a way that they make you feel. And now that I'm saying this concept of feeling infinite things and emotional signatures being these unique things, it might make more sense when you consider a specific person. The way mom, your mom, makes you feel is something very complex. It's going to be hard. You can try to define it. There's maybe you'll say it's a warm feeling. It's this, but there's some sadness. There's you know, all these types of things. Maybe there's a longing or missing. There's many things that will come up when you think of them, but they have a unique emotional signature, a way that you feel when you think about them, um, when you, if you, they're alive, or around them, when you see them, or when you see a picture of them, or hear their voice, they might bring up that emotional signature. There's a variety of ways that it might be brought to your attention, or they might be brought to your attention. And then when that happens, you feel that emotional signature, that experience of them. And it's a complex and dynamic thing. So what I mean by that is it's complex, and I'm getting already into some of that, how it's not just, oh, it's good, or it's bad, or I love them, or I hate them. It's much more complex than that and nuanced than that. This emotional signature, this way that you feel about them, or they make you feel. But it's also dynamic in the sense that it's not just set in stone. Now, a relationship you've had a longer time is going to be more stable than a new relationship, but... Even still, even if it's a relationship you've had for a long time, there can be these more stable aspects. But in the moment, let's say if we're talking about a husband and wife, if they've just had a fight, well, overall, they might have a certain emotional signature, but it will have 
a unique type of twist on it that maybe right now it's a little bit negative or there's a heavy feeling about it that might not be as deep as the other feelings they have, but it'll still be part of that experience of thinking about and then feeling their partner. So that'll be part of that emotional signature. Let me give you um, another example of how this emotional signature might develop. And this is also relevant to how we think about how we associate emotions with certain things, certain people, certain names. So I, I like this type of example because many people have experienced something like this. So let's say in a romantic sense, you meet someone that you want to date. And so you first start messaging them and you see their name on your phone. And there might be just that at that time, their emotional signature would be probably fairly mild in the sense that it's not very deep. But let's say there's some sense of excitement, anticipation, uh, the possibilities, an attraction, a variety of things that you might feel when you think of this person and you see their name. And over time, let's say in this relationship, things are going well. And so more, the feeling starts to evolve. Some of that mystery or things they don't know become more known. And you start to see some things you like. You might even notice some things you don't like. But still, that feeling might grow stronger. And now when you see their name on your phone, you have a, a different type of emotional reaction and feeling to that. And it starts to get a little bit deeper. Now, over time, maybe some of that excitement goes away because it's more stable. But you might have a deeper feeling when the messages pop up on your phone and you see their name, a more stable sense of connection, a more um, stable sense of memories and things that you've created together that makes you feel a certain way. And so we can see that that same name on your phone, that same image, that same person, their emotional signature has evolved as the relationship has evolved. So that's how this emotional signature is dynamic. And so, of course, the relationship can continue and we can make it a bit pessimistic just to uh, illustrate things a bit more clearly. And so things start to go bad in the relationship. The person gets hurt by that person not that they're, they're looking at the phone. And so now there's a pain, a sadness, an anger. Uh, other feelings might get triggered in. So we can see that an emotional signature, of course, it's about that person. But we bring our whole psyche into that experience with that person. It's not just someone in a vacuum that enters our life. They enter a life that's already happening and a story that's already happening. And so it's other past pains might get triggered that they might bring up now. Other times we felt betrayed or hurt in a similar way or felt the same way. And so over time, if we this relationship ends, if we fast forward, now this relationship ends and if they see that person's name on their phone or they come across a picture of them, they'll have a very different feeling. There might be a missing feeling, heartbreak. They might have feelings of longing or wishes that they had with that person are now melt away, but we can see that that same person, that emotional signature will evolve and can go from something quite good, pleasant, and of course, more even dynamic or more nuanced than that, and now into something much more painful, hurtful, and sad, even to the point where now the individual might hope they can forget this person, they can erase the memories or erase this emotional signature that it won't come up for them anymore. And over time, most of the time, that will start to happen. 
that the feeling, the emotional signature will get less deep or intense. The imprint will be less deep over time to the point where at some point they might not really have much feeling connected to that person. The emotional signature will be quite shallow or not very impactful on the individual. So the person was the same person the whole time, the way that we think of uh, a self or a human being, that there was this individual, but the emotional signature that they had on that person, we could see that it can go through so many um, different steps and changes, and it can be very intense and very significant to less significant over time. So the emotional signature of an individual is dynamic and complex and never stay static forever. And actually, that's the point I wanted to get to now. When I say it doesn't stay static forever, people might say, well, someone, when they die, that's, that's it. Right now, their emotional signature is just there. But that's not the case at all. And it's something actually quite fascinating. And uh, I might touch on the afterlife later. But here, when I say the relationship continues, even after, let's say, one individual has physically died, um, it's not that I mean that we're connecting with their soul or whatever you might believe about the afterlife. That's its own type of belief. But what I mean is your relationship with them does not stay set in stone. It can evolve over time as well, and it likely will. One way is it could get less and less significant. That can happen, but it doesn't have to. You can still feel in communication with that person based on how you experience them. You know, there's even, uh, I'm not an expert on object relations theory, but this way that we've, this theory of basically internalized these objects, individuals that we have in our life. And so you've internalized this person who we are thinking of, whoever it is, a loved one, and they're still there. And this is why even when someone is alive or if they're dead, people might say, you know, I, I, I thought about what my mom would say in this moment or what my brother would say or what my dad would say or what my coach would say. My coach wasn't there, but I thought of what my coach would say. And I, yeah, I thought my coach would say, get up and try it again, or whatever it is. And, of course, we can't say we know for sure that's what that person would have said in that moment. But there's something we've internalized about that person that then we are connecting to, even if it is within ourselves. So that relationship doesn't end just because one individual is physically no longer there. It is still an ongoing relationship. Yes, it's different than when we get to uh, physically interact with them, and then that would create new memories with them and new ways that the relationship gets impacted in that way. But the relationship itself is not over because it's something we experience. Just like if someone gave you lots of love, that love will continue even if you're not conscious of their love being what you're feeling and how you feel about yourself and how you treat others. Similarly, if you've been abused and hurt by someone, even if you don't consciously think of that individual, it's going to impact how you treat other people. And this is a reminder to be um, mindful of how we treat others because we're going to leave a lasting impact and a ripple effect based on how we treat them, how they will then treat themselves and treat other people. And so people won't remember what you said, they will remember how you made them felt. I think that's a quote by Maya Angelou, but I think a very beautiful one, the sense that even if you don't remember, and this is very true, you might even say, oh, yeah, someone gave me this, it made me feel really good. You might not remember the words that they said, but you remember the feeling of, of comfort or support or whatever it was that they, uh, whatever it was they made you feel. 
that's the thing that will stick with you and you will carry forward. So our relationship with someone doesn't end and, and for a variety of ways, because we also change and that can affect things. So many people might say, you know, I was so mad at my parents or had a certain feeling about my parents. But then when I became a parent myself, I had a different perspective on them that I thought, wow, you know, being a parent is a lot harder than I thought, or maybe even something different. Actually, no, I saw that the way my parent was, was not good at all. They were controlling me or abusing me or whatever it was they were doing. And now when I see with my own kids relating to them, I can see that those were not good ways and not things that I wanted them to do. So we change. And because of that, the emotional signature that we have of them will also evolve too, because it is dynamic in that way as well, that we are not static. And so because of that, even if there are no new interactions with that person, there will be a change and evolution of that emotional signature and the way we feel when we think of them or when we experience them that we want to be aware of. But also we can learn new things about that person. So you come to find out that your grandmother had cancer for three years but never told you or your family didn't want to tell you because they thought you couldn't handle it. And so now when you remember she wouldn't show up to certain events and it would make you upset or she was less energetic and you wanted her attention, it might give you a very different perspective. And some of the anger or hurt or sadness you have related to her might melt away and transform to compassion or a deeper appreciation for who she was. And you didn't interact with her directly, but your relationship with her and your emotional signature of her will change based on this new information or this new way of understanding her. So when we interact with one another, we all leave an emotional signature. It will be more impactful and deeper based on how significant that relationship is, but it's always there. And so this emotional signature is something you might feel when you just think of that person, hear their name, um, see a picture, hear their voice, whatever it might be, it'll trigger that emotional experience. And of course, if you're around them, you will feel that too. And so there's this way that we attach feelings to even things. I'm reminded of Wilson in the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks' character starts to connect with this volleyball because he has no one else to connect to. And in a way, the volleyball starts to take on a character and um, have a personality and has significance for him to the fact that when he is trying to finally save himself and he loses the volleyball, you can feel it in his grief. It's like he's losing a friend this thing that he connected to. And so it might seem silly in a way, and we think, oh, well, that's only because he was cast away on an island that he would do something like that. But really, we're doing that all the time with things around us. But also our relationships are uh, a reflection of that too, or it's part of that same meaning-making that we do in our relationships. Now, after the break, I'll continue on this theme of emotional signatures and how it relates to concepts like a soul, but also how it relates to what I think is often why people think they might be seeing a ghost or feeling a ghost, but how it's related to these emotional signatures. So let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing on the previous segment, talking about emotional signatures, how that is the way that we feel or someone 
that we know or connect to or any way relate to makes us feel that's the emotional signature that we have from them and that we feel from them. And so, uh, as I mentioned, I'll touch upon concepts of the soul or ways that we talk about soul and also ghosts in this segment. So, the way that we have an emotional signature for others, I actually think we also have, in a way, an emotional signature about ourselves or this sense of self that we have. That is hard to put words into it of what it feels like to be us or what we feel about ourselves. But sometimes it does show itself, like, for example, when we are very hard on ourselves, we can have a certain sense of feeling or enjoy our own company or have fun with ourselves. So there's are ways that we might have this emotional signature, but also this overall sense of ourself and who we are has a certain feeling. And so what I think is that emotional signatures are another term or conception of what people often will call a soul or an essence. And, and it feels that way, that when we think of a certain person, especially when you're close to them, that there's this certain sense of what makes them who they are. And in the book Selfless, I touched on these issues that Brian Lowry brought up, that we tend to have this sense that it's, it's bigger than just some personality traits. Uh, it seems to feel something ineffable, something that's impossible to describe. And I think because of that, because we can't put it into words, it feels like it must be something supernatural, metaphysical. There must be a soul that each person has. And so I don't know the truth about these issues to say that there isn't a soul or there isn't a God. But to me, I can understand the conceptualization that we make, the ways that as humans we are meaning-making machines, that this makes sense to us, this sense that, okay, there's something I feel about this person. Uh, you know, also people say things like an aura or um, a spirit that they have that is unique to them. And so that's this soul, that's this thing. And it also it can connects to this feeling of, well, then that's what persists after we die because there's something about them that's bigger than just their their body and their brain and neurons are something deeper. Even people have looked for the seat of the soul or trying to find what it is or the sense that, no, it's something outside of our body that is connected to us, but that we, you know, we can't see it. So, of course, that can't be falsifiable, so science can't give us an answer on it. But, of course, it can't be proven true either. There's going to be an element of belief or faith in these types of things. So, as I said, we can't disprove it or I can't also disprove it or say, no, these things aren't true or are true, but I'm sharing some perspective on what could make sense and make sense to me, the sense that it, it, we can make a feeling of a soul when we interact with others and there is the sense that they have something about them that makes them them. That's who they are. I, I thought this on Monday's show, and most of us would think, well, even if you cut off parts of their body or if their body changes, we would still think, no, that's still them. There's something deeper about them. But then there are some things that if we saw their personality change considerably, maybe we wouldn't. So there, there's a famous um, case of Phineas Gage, and any introduction of psychology book almost always has this story in there where this man, Phineas Gage, was working in, uh, I think it was railroad, a type of construction 
and a metal rod went through his head. And there's images of his skull, images of what the impact looked like, but basically the metal rod shot through his head and came out the other side, which is quite remarkable when we consider that he survived the event. He didn't die. Um, but after he physically survived and recovered, people saw that his personality changed considerably. And so uh, he changed in a variety of ways. And uh, I remember one person's quote that Phineas wasn't Phineas anymore or something like that. That uh, basically it seemed like he changed as a person, as who he was. And so maybe some of us think his, he was no longer there or his soul was no longer there. He was someone totally different. So these lines that we draw are usually blurry in the sense that it's not clear when does someone stop being them themselves or where what is it that makes them who they are to understand what would make them lose who they are but i think also what most people experience when it comes to this that it's one of those things that well you'll know it when you see it or you'll know it when you feel it so i feel the other person and they'll say no this is not them anymore uh this is not who they were before actually i'm remembering it popped into my head um mark solmes who wrote the book the hidden spring was very kind to join me on the podcast a few years ago his brother i believe his name was lee sadly had an accident i think um hit his head on a rock on the beach i believe something like that unfortunately and uh he had some brain damage as a result and you know mark would say that lee wasn't lee anymore somehow he changed how he was and who he was. And so, again, we can see the sense of there's something that we feel around someone or the way they make us feel or the way we see them, and then that changes, and all of a sudden it seems like, well, they're not them anymore because there's such a significant change in who they are that this is this is not the same person. And so to me, this can help explain the sense of a, a soul, that each person has something about them that makes them uniquely them, um, and this seems to be something that we can't put our finger on or explain. It's not just that they have a good sense of humor. It's not just that they are, uh, you know, they're physically this way. It's just an overall sense. And that to me is exactly what I mean when I say an emotional signature. It's this very, it is ineffable. It's not something you can completely describe. You might describe aspects of it, but it feels like something more than we can put into words. And I think it's this experience also of going to look at, conversations about consciousness and what is it and what makes it and what makes it even real or not real or is it differing degrees of consciousness or is it suddenly turned on um, we talk about the quality of this experience of something for example seeing the color red or what is it like to be a bat when we have these conversations i think what makes it difficult is that it is this type of experience that is hard to put into words to even then try to study it or understand it. So I see my brother and I feel a certain way and I can't, you know, you might tell me, well, your brain lights up in these certain ways, but it just feels a certain way that seems more than that or bigger than that. And so it doesn't seem like we can put a label on it. It must be something bigger than just uh, what we see and what we feel or what we'll ever be able to study. So as I mentioned, to me, this also can relate to some experiences people have of ghosts and so i think first it has to deal with the sense that well there is a afterlife people die and then their their soul or their ghost something still exists and might exist in our world and i know when it comes to ghosts people have certain beliefs of well it's when 
they had unfinished business on Earth in this physical body or, you know, a variety of things that then also become a variety of horror movies. But there's different ways that people believe about what um, what makes a ghost what they are. But I think there is this sense that when someone dies, as I mentioned before, their emotional signature doesn't die. So, um, you know, even if we don't have video of them, which was definitely trigger a lot of things, but just from your own memory and thinking of them, you can still feel what it's like to be around them. You can still experience their emotional signature, even if they are physically no longer with us. And so I think many experiences that people have, and I don't mean this like, you know, people go into a house and think they're searching for ghosts. And I think there's a variety of TV shows, ghost hunters and things like that. Um, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about when people say, you know, my, my grandfather, I think he's in the room right now. Or I think I, I felt him. I don't know, the breeze, a breeze came in, and, and I think that was my aunt's soul here coming to visit me. Maybe she has a message for me. And what I think is happening in a lot of these cases is that for some reason, and often this is going to be unconscious, sometimes it might be very conscious, but probably in a lot of these situations it's unconscious because if they saw a picture of their grandfather and thought about them and remembered what it was like to be around them, I think most people wouldn't have much of a reaction, but they might be just washing the dishes or doing something innocuous and all of a sudden have this feeling that emotional signature gets triggered and it could, I think, happen for lots of reasons. We just randomly have different thoughts, feelings, people will pop into our minds. And they have this experience of them being there. And so it wasn't, they didn't think about them. It didn't seem like they were aware of didn't think about that, but they feel them the emotional signature gets triggered. So it seems like their presence is there. They must be in the room with me. And so I know they physically died, they might be aware of, so it must be their ghost that's come to visit because I feel their presence. And so I think this is often what people experience when they think they're seeing a ghost or being in the presence of a ghost and um, different mediums might exploit this and getting people to feel like their loved one is in the room with them or they're talking to them. But I think this is often what people experience when they think they are seeing a ghost or feeling a ghost. And the truth is, I think their presence is in the room, but it's not in the room as in outside of them. It's within you. The person experiencing it is feeling that loved one again. And so they feel it and it's there. So the presence is there. Just as I was saying, Previously, your relationship with that person who has now died hasn't ended. You are still connected to them. You can still uh, feel them. You can still think about them, be motivated by them, comforted by them, even if they're gone. And so similarly, without thinking about them consciously, you might have their emotional signature be triggered, or what we also uh, will think of as their soul gets triggered, and all of a sudden, you will feel like they are there. So... To me, this is um, not going to explain every case of anything, but something to think about. And I know for many people, these experiences of a loved one, they think visiting them can be very meaningful. And I even hate to share that I think that often that's not what's happening. I don't think they're physically coming or their soul is coming. But I still think it's something beautiful that there's still that connection there. I've recently had a few dreams about my grandmother who passed away 
uh, over two years ago now. And I had one time I even woke up crying after the dream. And, you know, some people might say, well, she had a message for you or she was visiting you, and it's possible. But I still just felt a connection to her. And in one of the dreams, the one that made me cry, she was sick herself. And so it could have been how she was at the end of her life. But even in her sickness, I was actually sick during that time. This was just about two months ago. I was feeling very ill, and she was still comforting me in her sickness. So it was kind of, um, you know, she was sitting behind me and massaging me with her leg or feet, whatever she could. And there was this feeling of, even though she had very little to give, she was still trying to take care of me, to nurture me. And that was very much how she was when I think of her whole life. She was someone who was trying to take care of others and was thinking of others and was not thinking about herself and seeing what she can do to help other people. So it very much resonated with me that there was, this is the kind of person that she was. And it also gave me a sense of comfort when I was not feeling good um, that I, I had, you know, and I don't mean this like a guardian angel actually there, but some sense of connection to nurturing and being taken care of in the ways that she took care of me so many times. And so I think I get it that it can feel sad and it's more comforting to think the person is actually there. And I can't say I know for a fact what's happening. I'm just sharing this perspective that to me, there's other ways that might explain that same experience that we have. And so to, to me, it's the sense of these emotional signatures that get triggered that makes us feel like the ghost still is there but it's just this feeling again comes up and we feel like they're with us. And as I said, in a way they are, their presence is there with you. It's just within you. It doesn't have to be uh, on the outside, some kind of presence that visits you. So let's go to another commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Wanted to change gears a bit. Uh, it's actually going to be kind of, a, a big shift talking about these things like the soul and our sense of self, ghosts, connecting to loved ones and loved ones who have died. Uh, but talking now about politics, I think that's an easy way to suck the air out of the room. But in the sense that I'm continuing the theme of our sense of self is how our sense of self can be connected to politics, our views on politics, and how attached we can become to our views and how biased we can become to our views because of this connection that it has to our sense of self. So uh, Brian Lowry did a great job of this in the book Selfless, discussing how one of the reasons we can understand about connecting to a nation or political group can be because we know that our self is mortal, our physical self. And there's a way that if my country persists after I die and keeps going, uh, that will enable me to live on as well. So we like to connect to things that have a legacy that will extend beyond our own physical lives because it will give us a sense of comfort of knowing I will not die, I will not cease to exist because this group that I'm a part of will continue to exist. And so we could see that people's politics not just in the sense of their countries, because we can see in the United States, people might be connected to their country, but also very strongly to their political party. It becomes very much embedded, or it can become very much embedded 
in our sense of identity and our sense of who we are. I am a Democrat, I am a Republican, I am whatever it is in your country. That political party can feel like a part of our identity. And so you hear conversations about identity politics, as some people argue that we're focusing too much on race and gender and these things and seeing everything through those lenses. And of course we can see it too much or too far, but anything can go in an extreme direction. But I think those things are very important. But what I think is more important than focusing on identity politics is focusing on how much you identify with your politics. How much do you see yourself as, I am a Republican and this means all this, or I am a Democrat and this means I am part of that team. Uh, and we've seen, unfortunately, that not only do we already have teams, but the teams are becoming much more polarized in recent years, where it's not just, I am a Republican and I have different views than you as a Democrat. It's, I'm a Republican and I think you as a Democrat are stupid and immoral, and you're actually trying to bring about the demise of this country. And vice versa, that if you're a Democrat, you think the Republicans are trying to uh, destroy the country. And so people have become, unfortunately, even more into their sense of, I'm on the winning team, the right team, the self-righteous team, we have to win because the other side is evil and is going to destroy this country. And so there's a very strong sense of teams, but also our identity getting tied up into this team. I am this. So you say, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, it becomes part of your sense of self. Now, there's even research that's been done, and I think they, in a way, cheeky type of way, explained it in this way, that when people's political um, ideology gets attacked, it's as if they're being attacked by a bear. Something like that, that was like the wording, which basically was saying the parts of the brain that seem to get triggered when people's political views were being attacked was as if they were being chased by a bear. And so how might this make sense? Because I think, well, okay, someone is saying your idea is wrong or stupid or disagreeing. Why would that bring up the same feelings of being physically threatened and having your life in danger? And so again, it wasn't that there's some way to measure the brain looks like it does when it's being chased by a bear, but they were basically saying the fear centers were being triggered and these huge emotional centers are being triggered. So how might that make sense? Well, if my sense of identity is I am a fill-in-the-blank Democrat Republican, and now you are coming and trying to destroy that ideology, that team, it's not just my ideas that are being attacked, it's my sense of self. And so when you attack that sense of self, the feeling I can have is that I won't exist, right? So that self is me, and if that gets killed, what's left? And so this is why we feel such a strong desire, impulse, and urge to protect our ideas and make whatever arguments we need to make to ensure that, no, what I believe is true, what I believe is right, what this other person is telling me is wrong, is biased, fake news, Whatever it is that we uh, use as mental gymnastics to get our way out of this feeling that maybe I am wrong or maybe something is going on here more than the simple way that I'm trying to look at it. But I think what's costly is when we identify so deeply with a political team or side and it doesn't allow us 
to recognize the weaknesses on our side, the strengths of the other side, and also, unfortunately, destroys all possibility of collaboration and cooperation. When I think the other side is evil and trying to destroy the country, well, the only thing I the only thing I think I'm supposed to do is get all the power I can, try to take away power from them, try to even take away rights from them, because they're trying to just use those things to hurt people, to hurt the country, and I have to defend against that. So it's something you can ask yourself. You know, I was talking before about sports teams and how much you identify, let's say, if you are a sports fan with your team and them winning and losing and hating the other teams or whatever it is that you go through. And I think some of that comes up naturally when you are a sports fan, but the degree is something we want to be aware of. How much is it affecting us? We don't want to get carried away by it. I think politics brings up even deeper types of feelings of moral issues of right and wrong, um, intellectual issues of being smart and wise and intelligent versus being stupid and dumb and ignorant. And so people can get very impacted by this. And then if they identify strongly with it, they're going to be very strongly defending this aspect of their self, of their identity. They're going to make sure that they protect themselves. And if we really want to understand a situation, we have to try our best to go into that situation with the least amount of assumptions and preconceived notions and judgments before we take in the information. Though that's all we see in today's political landscape. Someone brings up an issue, and if it seems like it's aligned with your team, you say it's good. Yeah, they want to do this about taxes, right? That's always the right thing. Or they want to do this about immigration, up, oh, that's the right thing. Or if it's on the other side, nope, that's the wrong thing. And you see this happen where uh, certain proposals are made that aren't part of what the team usually does, and people are confused. How do I support this without going against what I've said before? And unfortunately, people find ways to justify it every time. And uh, you'll find news clips where they'll show the same person on one hand saying, this should never happen, and they themselves are doing it or they're supporting themselves doing it. Because we see that it's not about getting it right, it's about making sure they feel right. And so I, I think I mentioned something that alludes to this theme before, yeah, about sports fans and picking a favorite player, that when you find yourself attacking another side very strongly, you always have to ask yourself, is it because the other side is so wrong or so bad, and I feel that I'm justified or I have to so passionately present this case, or is it because you're actually not sure that you're right? Because it's funny what people are often doing when they're so strongly trying to convince you this is the way it has to be and the other side is this, the other side is that. As much as it sounds like they're trying to convince you, part of what they're doing is convincing themselves. Because if your sense of who you are and being a good person is so tied up to something being right or being true, then you're going to feel intense motivation to protect that view, that team, or whatever that it is. And so unfortunately, when we join these teams, it takes away or reduces our ability to think critically about things. And I'm definitely not the first person to critique the two-party system in the United States, but I think it's horrible for the production of good ideas, quality ideas, for collaboration, for accountability, for a whole host of things that would be necessary to create a good government, to create 
a group of people or a country in general that is working towards making things better. What we currently see in a country like the United States is it's all about keeping power, which is really what politics and, uh, is in general. We see this so clearly in Iran, where the government does not seem to care about the well-being of the people, but just the well-being of themselves and their bank accounts and their sense of power and control. But politics is much more about control and power than it is about doing good. And so this is where we have this paradox that we actually don't want people to have power who want power, and we want to give power to people that don't want the power. So by this, I mean that the people that seek out power, that want to seek out having control, is usually not for the right reasons. Someone who wants to become a dictator, especially, let's say, it's not because they have a great plan to save the world. Of course, that's what they're going to say is the reason that they are the chosen one, that they have this this uh, plan and they have the right ideas and they're going to make the country the best that it's ever been. But someone who wants to have that kind of absolute power is not coming from a good place. And so unfortunately, the people that we would want to have power are actually the ones that wouldn't want the power, that they're not seeking it. And this is why for me, the focus should always be on if you are given a type of political position, the position should be based on responsibility more than it is about power or your authority should be in the service of your service of how you help other people rather than about giving you something so for example a teacher should have authority in the classroom but that authority is given to the teacher not so that they can feel good about themselves or have a power trip or have this really nice experience of oh i have you know, power and I should be able to do whatever I want or be treated in a certain way, the authority given to the teacher is so that they can best teach the students. They can best instruct them academically, but also from other aspects of teaching them character and, and things like that, emotional intelligence and social emotional types of things. That's why a teacher should have authority, just like a pilot. A pilot should have authority or the, say the pilot team co-pilots and whoever else, the officers involved, they should have authority to make the decisions about the plane. It shouldn't be everyone decides what we do next and should we turn this way or that way or get to this type of seat. No, they should have that authority. But it's in service of taking care of everyone on the plane and making sure it lands safely, not so that they can then abuse that power or treat others badly and have this power to use in order to not have to face consequences. But what we tend to see is that people who have these positions of power or positions of influence are given power to use for themselves rather than power to take care of others. Someone becomes a member of the government often because they want the benefits of, that come with that, which is usually wealth, uh, lots of certain perks while they're in power, but also after they're in power. We see in the United States, for example, first people have, there's no term limits in, in, the, in Congress, so people stay for decades, probably way longer than they should. And then afterwards, if they ever do stop or they don't get reelected, they become lobbyists or give talks and make tons of money. And so for the rest of their lives, they're financially taken care of. So unfortunately, we see that people that are drawn to politics, although, yes, they're going to say it's because they 
care about people and they have the right ideas and they want to serve their country. But usually that's not what is drawing people into politics because it's the power that they get rather than the responsibility that they should see it as. So we are unfortunately very far from that in a country like the United States where having a political position gives you power, but the responsibility is less significant to most people that are seeking it. But that is my hope, and I'm not the only one to have thought these types of things, that we, we need to have a system where it's focused on responsibility rather than a sense of having power. But coming back to this idea of politics and how much we identify with them, it's something that all of us have to ask ourselves. How much am I seeing myself through the lens of a political view or a political team and seeing that when we have that type of mindset, it's going to inevitably warp the way we see the world, the way we take in new information, and will likely make us push others away rather than push them towards ourselves. And I think in the last segment, I'll touch on this theme of our sense of self, our need for having that sense of self, our need for having a sense of community, but then how do we balance that with having a sense of a more global community that we can connect to everyone, not just to one particular group. So let's go into our last commercial break and I'll touch on those themes afterwards. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So this last segment, I want to tie some things together and look at, based on some of these discussions on our sense of self, why we might have it, some reasons that it can be good or good to identify ourselves with others, but ways that can cost us, for example, as I talked about in the previous segment, our politics and political views and how it can in general make us not as open to seeing things once we've identified with a, a certain side. Try to look at how do we make sense of this all or function within these themes of having a sense of self, but not be, being too tied to aspects of it, being parts of communities and connecting, but not getting too blinded by a particular group that we might identify with, and how we can be more aware and mindful of a global sense of people and humanity of what people are going through. And so a theme here that I think is a theme just in trying to live a good life is balance. And so balance is one of those, you know, words we can throw out, and I throw it out a lot too, that could be easy to say and just easy to go to and think, well, that's the solution to everything. And it could be very much an oversimplification, a sense of, okay, well, just find balance and, okay, that's it. You can say that about anything. But really, I truly think that living a good life is a balancing act because we have all of these different important aspects of self, relationships, experiences that we have to balance within our 24 hours a day and however many days we are given on this earth. So you have to take care of yourself, but take care of other people too. And this is its own balancing act. Well, how much is it that I make sure I take care of myself and myself and how much do I make sure I take care of others? And for different people, this struggle might be a different balancing act for different reasons. Some might have a harder time taking care of others. Some might have a hard time taking care of themselves. As I say, for some people, 
Uh, it's hard to put themselves in other people's shoes. For some people, it's hard to keep their own shoes on or to realize that they're wearing shoes too, to be connected to their own experience. And so I could just say balance, but then when we actually live our lives, we see that it's not that simple to just throw that out as a word. Because, for example, um, what does it mean to have balance and taking care of yourself and others? Let's say a friend is really upset and they call you at midnight and they want to talk because they're in tears. Well, you can say, if I'm taking care of myself, I should make sure I get enough sleep. But if I'm taking care of my friend, I should be there for them. Now, maybe if they're doing this every night for a long time, you might change your mind. But then if you see actually it's because they've just gone through a series of significant losses, you might have more patience to give them more of this. And your life might be a bit out of balance. You're getting less sleep. You might be a little bit more irritable, but you still might think it's the right thing to do. And there's no black or white way to say, okay, well, after six days of this happening, you should tell your friend, oh, this is too much for me, or you need professional help, or whatever it is that you might say in response to someone asking you for what feels like too much. Um, it's hard to say when that line has been crossed. So I really believe that balance is a theme of life, that we're constantly in the sense of trying to figure out uh, how to live our lives correctly. And I like balance also thinking of something like being on a tightrope, sometimes when I think of tightrope, it seems so uh, precarious or we're so close to falling off, maybe like a balance beam um, in gymnastics, but you're walking on this balance beam and it's not that you've achieved balance and once you've achieved balance, now you never have to think of it again. Balance is not a destination. It is a ongoing process. You might feel in balance at the moment, but then now you have to make sure to keep that balance or see what things might throw you off balance in the future or in these next steps. So each step you take, you have to balance and rebalance and see uh, what is going on. So balancing is this big theme of life, and it definitely is relevant to this conversation of having a sense of self, thinking of yourself, connecting with others, but also connecting with the world. So, you know, as I was even saying before, so let's look at some of the things that have come up. We have a sense of self, and especially on Monday night's show, discussing the book Selfless by Brian Lowry, I discussed how it does seem like our sense of self is exaggerated or overblown, the way that we are so um, thinking of ourselves and thinking of ourselves often as being so special or unique. But really, if we think about it, what's special and unique about us is that each one of us is experiencing us, our own life, our own sense of self. And so because of that, it's going to feel significant. We can try to have empathy, but we never get to genuinely experience what it's like to be someone else or to have their experience. So all of us tend to have this sense of ourselves being very special and unique and in some ways more important than others. We might not like to think this. We generally will value ourselves more than others, but that's just because we are our own experiencer. We're the one who has that sense of self, and so it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, that we might have this exaggerated sense of our value, our worth, that's more likely to make us want to survive and make sure it's important that we survive and that our offspring survive. So we have this sense of self that might be a little bit more um, overstated or exaggerated than it needs to be or is really there. And often we do find that what will make us happier in the long term is focusing on others, is turning that lens to other people. As I mentioned before, some people might do this too much and forget about themselves, 
but overall, most of us will benefit from making sure our focus is on others individually and also serving the world. So I also mentioned before things like it's good to be part of a sports team. I mean, definitely if you're playing on one, but I also meant as being a fan. I think there could be benefits of connecting with others, having a sense of community, having those events together where you're enjoying the process and, you know, let's say cheering, singing songs together. You know, at Liverpool, they sing the song, You'll Never Walk Alone, which I think is amazing. Every time the fans are all singing it together, the, the words itself, and then also they're really being together as they sing it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful experience. But the thing is, when we become part of a team, and I was saying this about politics as well, it can often lead to the sense that my team is good and we are the best and the other teams are bad. And even we see in sports, uh, I was mentioning Liverpool, but British hooligans in soccer are notorious for having horrible fights and uh, beating each other up and even deaths happening as a result of people fighting over what is at least the base of it is their teams. I'm this team, you're that team, and we are enemies. And even um, some would argue that sports itself is like a proxy for war in the sense that it's like war, but in this safe environment of a game that has rules where no one actually gets hurt. Of course, injuries will happen, but the goal isn't to hurt or kill your opponent, but to try to win the game. But it's this way of having war, but in a way that is acceptable. Um, but unfortunately, that sometimes does um, literally bleed into fighting outside of the sport itself between fans. So we can see that there's always going to be problems with identifying too strong with our group. So again, an un another balancing act. There's a sense of uh, it feels good to have a sense of community, to be part of a group. But we also have to balance that with the fact that if we get too embedded or connected to our group in a way that we identify with it so strongly that we are blinded to the reality of other people and their experiences that they are also good, that we can then become, um, you know, strangers to ourselves and that we might do certain things that we initially would never think we would do as far as, as, far as hurting other people or uh, taking certain action. And we'll be blinded to seeing reality because we get so sucked into the echo chamber of our group that we take everything in and because our identity is so tied into that, that we have to protect and defend this sense of self, this sense of self now that's part of this community and anything that might be against it that's against our team and for the other team, we will vehemently deny it or attack it. So it's another balancing act that we have to find. How do I create a sense of community and smaller communities, but still feel part of this larger community of the world or recognize that I can love my community, but it doesn't mean it makes my communities better than others or to love it. I have to see other communities as worse or mine is better than others. You know, you see this a lot with cultures. I'm Iranian from my parents, both being Iranian. I was born in the United States, but we see how people talk about Persian culture, for example, and, oh, we have the best of this and best of that. And of course, uh, there's greatness in Persian culture, but we can see that this is a way of trying to elevate ourselves. We want to feel good. I'm part of this culture. This is part of my heritage. heritage. It's something within me. I am better because this is the best. This is better than others. And I think this comes from many things, including our fear of being insignificant, our fear of um, 
not being good. And so we try to, as I was saying, with sports teams or with players, try to connect to something bigger than ourselves or superheroes. And so if I'm part of this bigger uh, culture, then that makes me better than other people. But I don't think that is necessary. I think the goal is, another one of these things that's easier said than done, to recognize the equality of all people, including ourselves, with others. So, of course, this means not looking at myself as less than, but not looking at myself as greater than others either. And if I already can feel that or feel that sense of um, equality and value, I'll be less likely to feel this desire that I have to show or prove that my country, my group, my culture, whatever it is, is better than the other groups, better than them, put them down. Um, even with culture, you know, I know there's a success, we're the greatest culture, our empire was this or whatever it was, but I think that's really wasting our time rather than looking at the beauty of our culture, but enjoying the beauty of others. And just like you might feel so connected and love parts of your culture, especially if you're exposed to them from a young age, hopefully you can recognize that common humanity, that shared humanity of someone else from a different culture will feel the same way about theirs. And we don't need to compare them. You know, an idea I think of is, let's say uh, two people have babies and they just had a baby and they, they love their baby as they should. And their baby should feel like the most special to them because it's their baby and they're responsible for taking care of that baby. And, you know, maybe they'll even joke that mine's the cutest and all those things, which is even related to what I've been talking about here. But I would hope that they can recognize, I love my baby so much. And I see that parent over there, and I'm sure they love their baby so much. And we don't need to compare whose baby is better or worse. There's no need for that, and that's futile and not related to the matter that we just love our children. We should love all children and that we care about them. But, of course, your child is going to be special to you. And so what I think of is the same way we can do that, look at your child and think, I love my child. I feel connected to my child. This child is so special to me. But I can also see that that person over there, oh, I can just imagine how much they must love their baby. And I have love for their baby, too, that we should have love for all children. And if you're a healthy human being, you're going to care about all children of the world. But I have a different relation with mine. But I can imagine what that mom or dad is, that parent is feeling over there. And so similarly, we can have that same relationship about our ancestors. I love my ancestors. I love my cultural heritage and the people of my past. But I can also understand that that person over there might feel the same way about theirs. And they have that same connection. And I don't have to say, well, mine is better than theirs. That's why I love mine. No, I love mine because this is my cultural heritage. And I can see that they love theirs. And just like you can look at their cute baby and play with that cute baby for a little bit, hopefully we can share our cultures and heritages or whatever teams we're on with each other and enjoy them, even if it's not the one that you come from and have that respect and enjoy it and see the beauty in it, just like you see the beauty in the child, hopefully we can have that type of experience and relationship. So we don't have to think my child is cuter than yours. All the children are beautiful. I love mine. You love yours. All of our pasts are beautiful. So the present and the future, we can use that same type of mindset looking at the past and recognizing I don't need to put mine above or put you down to feel good about myself. I can love me and mine for what it is and also realize that line of mine and me and you probably much thinner than I'd like to believe or I probably should believe. And hopefully we can turn our focus away from proving how good we are to doing good things and trying to make things better for everyone 
in the world, to, to recognizing that shared humanity, that you might be part of a culture, part of a, a team, whatever that might be, but don't think that means that the only way to make your team good is to say it's better than the others or to put other people down. I have some more thoughts on this theme of, of seeing the, the world and seeing yourself not just as a member of one team, but a member of this global team, being a world citizen rather than just a citizen of a country. But I'm sure in future shows, I'll, I'll get to discuss it further. All right, that brings us to the end of this afternoon's show. A big thank you to Farhuda in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.